Hello. Welcome to the Regular People Podcast. Today I'm joined by Josh Frederick. And we're going to be talking about probably quite a few things. Whatever comes up, maybe music, maybe some history, maybe some politics, maybe some ecology and sustainability. We'll see where the conversation goes. Hey, Wade. How's it going? Great. Thanks for being at my house to do this. Yeah, how long have you lived here? Well, since August. Okay. Late August. No, September 1st. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. So, before we talk about any topics, mm-hmm. as I've been doing for the past several, every episode, really, Yeah. I've been asking my guest, mm-hmm. what have you been doing with the past, let's say, five years of your life, could be 10, whatever kind of time frame you want to put on it. Yeah. But what have you been doing with your life? Like, so we can get an idea of who you are, what mm-hmm. you're about. This doesn't have to be what you've been doing, like, with a job. Just, like, yeah. what are your, have your thoughts been on your life? How have you changed in the last five years? Whatever you feel like you'd want to talk about there. Okay. Last five years. I just want to think, first, where was I exactly five years ago? Yeah, in 2015, I was living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I lived there for eight years total. What brought you to Eau Claire? I went there to go to college at UW-Eau Claire. Yeah, so 2015, I was not in school there, but I was just living there. I was in uh, a couple bands. I think right around this time, my then-girlfriend had like left for Alaska to live there for a year to do some AmeriCorps work. So I think that was kind of a big deal. I ended up visiting her eventually there and it was beautiful. Where in Alaska? In Sitka. It's like uh, on an island. It's like a fishing, like a big fishing town. But I mean, before it was colonized, it was, um, man, I wish I remembered the tribes there, but I think it was like maybe Inupiaq, but was don't, there a me. large Native American population there? Yeah, there was pretty large Native population, and I believe the first like European people to get there were Russians. Yeah, because it's yeah, it's in Alaska, but um, so it's like a weird culture blend of like yeah, yeah. American, <laughs> Russian, Native. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, even with like the architecture in. There's like this Russian church there in the middle of the city and it's like wild. And then you like drive down the street and you see like totem poles that have been remade. And like, yeah, it's really, it's a really cool place. Um, Yeah, it's right on the ocean. I'll, I'll probably talk more about it later because it's, uh, it's actually part of the Tongass uh, rainforest, which is the, lo- the largest temperate rainforest in the world. And it's one of the most like biodiverse places on earth. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I feel like normally when you think of rainforest, you think of tropical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what makes a rainforest a rainforest is just that it has a lot of rain. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily that it has right. any tropical elements. That's cool. Yeah. Did yeah. you go in it at all? Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty much the whole island is, is forest and it was like a small portion, you know, cleared away for a city. Yeah. But, um, how big is the island? Do you think like, do you have a frame of reference for it? I feel like I remember them saying it's like... Uh, Would it be feasible to walk around the island? No. Bigger than that? No, yeah, bigger than that. Quite big, but okay. but there's only like one road on the island. <laughs> well, not one road, but like... One main road? Or... One main road that yeah. goes from one end of Sitka like 
to the outskirts of Sitka, and that road is like 14 miles long or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's like, once that road's over, it's like just wilderness for the rest of the island. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty wild. That is cool. Yeah. I kind of am sad there's so few actual wild places in the world nowadays. Yeah. So whenever I hear of a place that's mostly wilderness, yeah, less urbanized, that's inspiring yeah. in a way. Yeah, it really was. So, yeah, I'll definitely come back to that in the conversation. Yeah. So what did you do after visiting Sitka, was it? Yeah, Sitka. That was like a little over four years ago that I finally visited there. Uh, yeah, so basically the last five years, though, I was like in a band taking a break from school. What kind of band? Probably, you'd call it probably like an indie rock band. or. In- so did you not have like a style of music that you played? necessarily yeah we didn't aim for like a style we just there's just two really good friends of mine and we just liked jamming together and the three-man band yeah i think three-man bands are the best yeah yeah it was two men and one woman well yeah yeah yeah. but yes (laughs) i know what you're saying yeah i think that it requires the most amount of musical skill because you don't really have any redundancy in Mm. the band it's not one of those bands with three guitarists yeah you know three non-bassist like guitarist yeah yeah Yeah. a drummer a bassist and guitarist and somebody also has to sing probably yeah i've been in like larger bands and those are fun but yeah it's something about a trio is really cool we had we were just guitar bass and drums yeah was there a singer or just instrumental yeah singer um the singer was lauren she played guitar and then she also like wrote the songs and you were on bass and i was on bass and then my friend Elliot was on drums. Yeah, Lauren would write the songs and then we'd we'd all kind of arrange them together. Like yeah. we Elliot and I would come up with our parts and she would just let us do pretty much whatever, you know, and then t- told us if she wanted us to do something specific. But that's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Did you ever do any recording? Yeah, we did um one five song EP and then like a two song single, like with you know, like an yeah. A and B side. Yeah. Nice. But it was just digitally released. So. Oh, okay. Did you use your own like recording equipment or did you go into a studio? Our friend Leo had his own studio actually. So he had spent years just acquiring yeah. microphones and equipment. And Was it free? Did he uh, just let you use it? Let's see. It's like friends and family discount. I think, I can't even remember now if he, if he charged us or not. I feel like we paid him something. Yeah. yeah, we did eventually pay him something. Pay him in uh, sales, album sales or something like that. Yeah. Did you sell it, the uh, recordings? Yeah, we sold them. Yeah, we ran out of physical copies, but yeah, it's still online for sale. So anybody who wants to buy it. What was the band name? Um, Idol Empress. Was there a name to the EP? Yes, it was Idol Empress. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was a lot of fun. The EP was the first thing we did. I was in another band too at the same time, well, right before that, and I had done a couple albums with them, so it wasn't my first time doing it, but with Idol Empress, yeah, that was like a five-song EP. That was the first thing we did, and then we did the singles like a couple years later. How does it work for, because I've never participated in recording uh, music, really. My brother was in a band for several years, and he did recordings and stuff. So when you are getting together to record an EP or an album, Mm. Do you perform just your own part, just that person's part, and you kind of put it all together? Do you perform all at once as a band? 
or both maybe yeah we did both of those um and what do you do like mix and match what sounds the best to create a final song yeah like it's there's like oh, so many ways to do it like some a lot of the like pop music here on the radio is recorded all separately yeah just for like the purest musical quality because like we were talking about earlier there's no bleed yeah with the microphones or anything so what they'll do is they might play together but they'll have a drummer in like glass like yeah oh so are you saying they play at the same time but in separate like studio rooms so that like yeah. the audio doesn't interfere with each individual right. instrument sometimes yeah just to get like so the goal usually with a lot of recording including ours was the first thing you want to get is a drum track yeah like a good drum track so you might all play it together this was usually what we did i'll just you know, i'll stop talking about pop process and i'll just tell you what we yeah. did yeah we would play the whole thing together to get a drum track but I'll, i think we usually use drum and bass track yeah we use like a basic track of drums bass and guitar almost always so we would get one take of of that yeah but yeah a lot of pop music it's like just get the drum track first and then build everything after that and the drummer often also plays to a metronome yeah. in his ear, in their ear, in pop music. That's cool. I don't have really anything against that. Cause it does. You guys didn't do that, though? We no, just no metronomes for you? No, because it's like, I don't know, a lot of the like bands in like the 60s and 70s and stuff that yeah. we liked, they didn't use metronomes. They it doesn't just... really matter if you speed up as long as you speed up together. Exactly. <laughs> that was kind of our whole thing, too, is we were just very like, we like to uh, have kind of a watery <laughs> flow in the way yeah. that we like improvise together, like just constantly listening to each other. And yeah, and they were both great at that. Do you think you're good at keeping time internally? I, th I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like you kind of have to be as a musician, but yeah, I mean, not everybody is. You go to a concert at Summerfest or something, mm -hmm. and then the lead singer of the band is like all right everybody clap along and then within 13 <laughs> seconds the entire crowd is just way off and they're clapping at all times yeah like nobody can keep the tempo mm -hmm. that's a big problem <laughs> yeah it's hard it's harder than people think yeah because even i remember we did an exercise once i took like a well i was in i took some i was in some jazz like groups in college like jazz ensemble yeah where it would be like a one credit course technically um, and you just play like that's all it was yeah we'd learn songs and then we'd have like an end of semester recital oh, okay um i remember also taking like a jazz history course that was like in the music to offered by the music department but it was a lot of non-music students just trying to like get a history credit cultural or diversity or, yeah, credit yeah. or something like that and we did an exercise with the class of like clapping together yeah. to keep time and it was like he he pointed out to us that it's a lot easier for everyone to stay in time together when the tempo is fast. Yeah. But when it's when slow, you slow it down, it like, gets harder. Yeah. Everybody's anticipating the next beat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm in a world music class right now. Oh, nice. Similar to what you just said about the, like, I just took it because I needed yeah. that kind of credit. Yeah. Um, and everybody else in there probably thought it'd be an easy credit to get. Right. And then we have to like perform some music. We don't have. We're not expected to be musical have have any musical ability but we still have to perform it yeah and it's striking how many people can't stay on tempo yeah even with a metronome yeah like, wow is that a, are you guys in person yeah well oh, that's cool. my only in-person class right now oh, nice. there's only 
six people in the class. That's cool. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would love to hear more about that. Or like yeah, I can tell you more. Chat more. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. What, what's like the coolest thing you've learned so far? Um, okay, so we made some flutes and we made some shakers. We were spending like a month on Native American music. Nice. And that was pretty cool. But I think maybe the coolest thing right now is we're doing, it's called an agbacore, mm-hmm. which is uh, music from Ghana. Oh, nice. And it's like a really heavy drum song, which a lot of African um, songs are. This one is African, not Native American, because we're on a new unit now. Yeah. So there's like five different instruments, all percussion, mm-hmm. that are doing you know their own separate thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't easily fit into like the Western time time signature right. exactly. It's like a twelve beat mm-hmm. repetitive, but it's kind of like split up into sometimes three, sometimes four. Not not consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one person has to hit on like every other offbeat, but not every offbeat kind of thing. And okay. That's yeah. hard for people who aren't musically inclined to do. Mm-hmm. And then we have to all do these parts at the same time as each other. And then as soon as one person gets off the beat, everybody just, it sounds like, you know, chaos. Yeah. So <laughs> we're performing in Agba core and it's pretty slow, but we were doing that in class cool. last week and it was kind of fun. We had, I don't remember what the instruments are called, but we, there's like this shaker, which is called Nakatsa, I think actually. Okay. And then we have these big drums and we have this like two bell cowbell. One's mm-hmm. higher pitch, one's lower pitch. Yeah, there's like several drums, and they're all doing their own thing. Nice. So I think that's probably the coolest one we've done so far. Yeah, that's really cool. I'd love to learn more about just like rhythmic, like aspects of like ancient music, yeah. <laughs> especially like indigenous cultures like that. Like, yeah, it's really all the classes. It's yeah, all, yeah, indigenous music. That's cool. That's really awesome. Yeah, that's like polyrhythm yeah, stuff. Is definitely. what it sounds like. Yeah, that definitely shows up. In jazz, obviously, because that was like, I don't know. I think they say jazz is kind of like a fusion of a lot of cultures. Like it was like African rhythm and melody fused with like sometimes European harmony. And I mean, isn't jazz heavily from like New Orleans area? Yeah. So that's a lot of like cultural fusion going on there. Yeah, exactly. A lot of European and African mixtures of musical styles. Yeah. There's like the Creole. Yeah people and yeah that was a big thing there so i know a little bit about that african polyrhythm stuff but not not as much as i would like that sounds really interesting yeah Yeah, it always sounds really cool it's Mm -hmm. like technically hard to do yeah i was a percussionist um when i was younger i was a drummer i was never all that good and i never really played in a band even though i wanted to yeah Um, i had a drum set and i would like practice at home and stuff Mm. And one time I went to this like drummers council or like drummers meeting or something where they would meet up every week and mm-hmm. they would talk like drum theory yeah. and then they would perform for each other. And like, this is what I've been working on these past few months. They're yeah. basically like drummer PhDs. Kind of. <laughs> That's like the attitude of it. And they're performing this really technical stuff. Yeah. There was this one guy who was like 40 and he'd been just an expert drummer his whole life. That's like what he went to school for. Mm. And what he drummed, I was just like, I didn't even know that was a thing that could be done. Yeah. It was, I don't even, I don't remember what it was called, but it was a really complicated series of just craziness on the drum set that yeah. sounded like yeah. somebody just showing off all their, all their drumming prowess. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, I was there and I was like, I thought I was a good drummer showing up for this thing. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not. 
I'm the worst drummer in the room. That was when you were like young? Yeah, I was like 12. Maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. I had just gotten a drum set for Christmas, like several months before that. And I was yeah. all excited. Do you and feel that that kind of dashed your hopes a little bit? Or? A little bit. Because, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was simultaneously like inspiring. Like, wow, look at how awesome these guys are. Yeah. But also like, wow, look at how shitty I am <laughs> in comparison. Yeah. And like, if I wanted to be come that good, it would take me another 20 years of practice. Yeah. So a little bit yeah. disheartening. Because it's kind of like, I feel like people have a natural urge to just be immediately good at things. Yeah. Definitely. Or immediately, like, at least passable where they can see that they're constantly making progress. Yeah. And if you see such a wide gap in ability between two people, it's kind of discouraging in a yeah, way. Definitely. Yeah. What you said about wanting to be good or passable yeah, almost immediately is, like, I definitely um, have, like, experienced that feeling. And I think that's why I kind of like shied away from, because I play a few instruments, but I first played, my first instrument was piano, Oh yeah. but I took lessons and I didn't really like lessons that much because it was just like... Too like regimented? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I learned some cool songs, but like I didn't retain the ability to uh, read sheet music, like sight read it. Yeah. But, I've mostly forgotten how to yeah. do that too. And it just felt, yeah, like it was like I constantly needed to improve rather than like oh i have some songs i can play and it's fun and i can also figure things out on my own with my ear like it wasn't i wasn't doing any of that with yeah. piano but then when i started playing guitar it was like oh if i learn these three chords i can play like 20 different rock songs and yeah <laughs> and like you just start there and you're having fun already and then you just like i don't know that is more of I feel like there's a lot of self-taught guitarists yeah definitely. in particular like yeah of all the instruments guitar yeah. is definitely <laughs> probably the highest percentage of self-taught people yeah but yeah i mean i just kept learning things from the internet actually and yeah that's kind of how i chose to do it i feel like piano especially when you're learning i never had piano lessons but i feel like half of the kids that i know did yeah. have piano lessons as a kid and it seems like that's one of the most at least typically it's done in a really like strict like this is the order in which you learn things this is how you do it yeah and it seems like there's like no soul in it mm -hmm. until you already become an expert yeah it's the first 10 years of your piano lessons it's so just like a chore yeah and i know you have to learn the fundamentals and that's important and you have to you know become good before you can become expressive yeah but i feel like it disheartens people and it turns so many people off from a thing that's supposed to be like creative and artistic and yeah. it ends up feeling mathematical yeah yeah definitely yeah and i it's, think that's also true with a lot of fields really uh -huh. i think it's just a problem with how we teach in a lot of cases like teaching piano you need the fundamentals but you can teach it in a more fun more creative way yeah same thing with like physics mm -hmm. Phys like it can be really interesting and really cool yeah. if you focus more on experimentation yep. than just straight up like okay let's do calculus yeah. for three years and right. then we can do cool stuff and like you should be doing cool stuff the entire way agreed i've taught some people just some of my friends and stuff i've given them like piano lessons and um i tell them up front like hey i actually can't teach you how to <laughs> sight read but i can yeah. teach you how to do like teach you a few scales and like how to put a a little solo together over some simple chords and like you can experiment with that kind of stuff and usually they have fun seem to have fun with it like and i also i taught guitar at like a music school 
for a little bit. I was like, what age range did you teach? Um, was it just any? Just any, but it tended to be like middle school, high school kids. Yeah. And I had one little, really little kid who was just like super hyper and could not focus. (laughs) That was kind of funny. Yeah. I tried to take the same approach there. I was like, let me just get you started (laughs) so you can like have fun and give you the tools and like give you some resources too, where it's like, cause I feel like, yeah, you can't get good at an instrument by like only playing it at your lesson yeah like something. once a week for an hour like <laughs> which is like what you're I never going to become good <laughs> yeah it's... you probably need to own the instrument and play it every day yeah if you want to become really good you need to play it for hours a day mm-hmm. i was just reading a book you've probably heard of it because it's like a famous book mm-hmm. outliers by malcolm gladwell mm-hmm. have you read that no but i was just thinking about i know about the ten thousand hours rule yeah yeah was... there's a whole chapter on the ten thousand hours rule yeah and it would show like he went through like people that were like the best of the best stuff, like music, the people who would get in like the symphonies and that is like their profession mm. and they're like virtuosos at playing violin or whatever. Yeah. They he, they would do like polls, whatever, scientists or whoever, just to st- mm-hmm. gather information and like how many hours per day do you spend playing violin? Yeah. And then of course the virtuosos spend like eight hours a day mm-hmm. basically playing for the past 10 years and that's why they're so good. And the people who yeah. are, are just like, not all that great, but still pretty good violinists. Mm-hmm. You know, they only spend like one hour a day. Yeah. So they're still very good, but you have to put in a shit ton of hours yeah. in order to become really good at something. Yeah. That's what, I don't know, people always, not always, but sometimes if someone sees me play guitar, they'll just say like, oh, you're talented. And I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe a little bit, but like I've just put a lot of hours in. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's sort of like what that chapter of the book was about. Like, yeah. there is a certain amount of talent. But if you rely only on talent, you'll get outpaced by everyone else. Yeah. Right. Like, talent can get you that first head start, but you need to consistently practice mm-hmm. in order to actually get better. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure people don't mean it this way, but it's almost like if somebody calls you talented, it's almost like an insult. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're overlooking the amount of effort that you've put into it. Right. Yeah. They're just saying, like, you got this as like a hereditary gift or something you just yeah. were born with the innate musical ability which yeah. might be true but it also overlooks how much time you put into right. playing guitar yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah totally i kind of can play piano a little bit i'm really bad nice. definitely bad piano player mm-hmm. um and it's that's all self-taught i don't have really not like a very basic ability to play with both my hands mm-hmm. I'm especially bad at using my pinkies yeah on piano so I'm i'm not a good piano player but i would always just because lots of people I knew had pianos. My cousins had pianos. So whenever I was there, I would always like to play them because mm-hmm. they're fun. Yeah. And normally I would just try to find like the melody of a song that I know. Yeah. Just to learn how to play some song. And that was always fun. And I could read sheet music being in like percussion in high school and middle school and mm-hmm. elementary school. Playing like marimba and xylophone and stuff. You have to be able to read sheet music. Right. That's something you get taught. But... Yeah, never put enough time into it yeah. to actually become, to actually continue progressing. I kind of like reached a point where I thought I was good for my age and then stayed there. Yeah. And I wasn't one of those people that just kept getting better because uh-huh. I didn't keep adding the amount of hours Got into it. my practice schedule. Yeah. Do you still play every now and then? or? My old drum set is at my dad's house. So if oh, I ever yeah. go to my dad's, then I'll play the drum set for a few yeah. minutes. Yeah. So my drumming practice is probably about 10 minutes a month. Got it. So I'm definitely not good anymore. 
I still have the basic ability to drum. Yeah. I haven't like lost all capability. Yeah. I've at the very least declined in capability. Yeah. Like I used to be practicing, like I used to practice songs. Like I would learn how to play like Tom Sawyer by Rush or whatever. Nice. And I would, you know, get print out the drum tabs and I would practice and stuff. Yeah. And now I, I can't really do that. Yeah. Nice. Well, I mean, not nice. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> but that is nice. That Cool that you learned yeah like it, that in that way yeah, yeah yeah drumming was um half self-taught half actually taught in school yeah okay did you have like a music program in your like elementary school where um, you like would learn an instrument not no there there was briefly like a, a guitar class after school i think that was like a that like lasted a whole semester or something it was after school though yeah, yeah. it just died out like oh. it was it never did you have like the basic like elementary school music class where all the kids were together in one yeah. room like singing songs and stuff? Yeah, that's okay. all we had. Yeah, didn't. Yeah, I don't remember much about it other than yeah, singing songs together. I always hated that yeah. aspect of music class, like the the general music class. But then starting in my fifth grade, I think we had like an optional extra like music class during school hours that if you showed an interest in learning an instrument. Yeah. Then it was like once or twice a week you get pulled out of your class uh-huh. and then you'd have like a 20 minute like one-on-one session with a music a different music teacher. Okay. And every like all the kids would do that so like, you know, a few kids at a time would get pulled out of their class and go to the music room and you know, they'd practice their saxophone with the teacher for 15 minutes and go back to class. Oh, okay. So it was like trying to get kids more like hands-on and personal yeah. teaching like into music. Yeah. I wanted to do saxophone. That was like the most popular thing. Everybody wanted to do saxophone because it's cool. It sounds cool and it looks cool. Yeah. And it's like jazzy and everybody, you know. Yeah. Shiny. Yeah. Shiny. And there's so many buttons and the buttons look cool and are fun to press. Uh Not every instrument has that. Right. (laughs) Um, Except I was told like, oh, there's already like 15 kids learning saxophone. So you've got to learn something else. Like we can't have every kid learning saxophone. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's like, all right, fine. I'll do trumpet. So I did trumpet. Nice. For a year. And I learned that a little bit. And my music teacher initially praised me because she just you know had a few kids in the room when we were learning trumpet like the yeah. trumpet learners and she's like okay just blow into the trumpet and let's see what noise comes out yeah and i think everybody is um i might get the actual letters wrong because i don't remember it, but i think everybody was like the standard note you hit just naturally blowing into a trumpet is like a g or something uh-huh. And I was the only kid who got like a high C. Oh, it might nice. be reversed. It might be a C and a high G. I don't know. Okay. But anyway, I, I had like a different note from else. My teacher was like, oh, that's so special. Like you, you, you show some natural talent. And yeah. I was like feeling good about myself. But then like by the end of the year, I wasn't I wasn't any more special than the rest of the kids. Oh, it just kind of died away. <laughs> and I got, was getting sick of trumpet. So I went towards uh, the following year. I switched to yeah. do percussion. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. And then I did that ever since. Cool. Okay. So did you take those guitar lessons after school? I think I went to like, no, not really. I think I went to like two or three of them. Yeah. It, yeah, I don't even think it lasted a semester. It was weird. It was just like some the guitar parents teacher or, had a breakdown. And yeah, I don't know. Like, I think like some parents were heading it, so it wasn't like even a teacher. They just lost steam. They were just like, okay, it's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> These kids won't even remember this in two <laughs> weeks. They're not gonna ask about. It. Yeah. So yeah, but I started. I just kind of picked up my dad's guitar. It was just like in our basement, and he never played it. He had took like a few weeks of lessons himself back in the day. But it's a pretty nice like. 
uh, Spanish style, like classical guitar. But I picked that up in like maybe seventh grade and started learning some chords. I think like Beatles songs and stuff. Yeah. I had like a book of those. Do you still have the guitar? Or does uh, somebody that you know? I don't know. I think, yeah, I think he still has it, but I'm not even, not really sure. Yeah. I would, yeah, anyway, it was, and then in like eighth grade, I got more into it and then got like my first electric guitar for a graduation present for eighth grade graduation. Why is it that everybody gravitates to electric guitars? Um, As that I know. Yeah, I don't know. I think something about just the loudness and the. Well, I suppose, yeah, it's not entirely even true, but in my middle school, I remember all the kids who were playing guitar, like, all had electric guitars, and they thought it was so cool to have the electric guitar going. Yeah. And I feel like somewhere around high school or, like, college, everyone's turning to acoustic because you can bring them to school and play them in front of people. (laughs) Yeah. Go to a campfire, bring out your guitar, and be the cool kid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That whole, like... It's kind of like a trope that is really funny to me. Yeah. The, the kid who play, like pulls out the guitar and plays Wonderwall or something. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But there are people. Did you ever do that? that? No. Um, not that song. <laughs> well, did you ever have like the reputation of like the guitar guy? Not not really. Kind of, I mean, there were times when people, I'm just kind of shy about performing. Yeah. And I always have been. Me too. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there were musical instruments. There were times when people really like were like, "Come on, play something, play something." And yeah, and I would finally play. Oh, I would, like something. when people tell me, like when when I'm in that situation, it makes me want to do it less. Yeah, if they're like, "Come on, just like do this one thing, like tell that joke again." I'm like, you know, I might have, but now I'm not going to. Like, <laughs> yeah. your your extra pressure makes me withdraw. Yeah, yeah. I I got into electric because I think I was just listening to a lot of like, at that time it was probably like a lot of like '60s and '70s rock rock and roll yeah and so i really wanted an electric to get that sort of sound and play the songs that i liked and then eventually a few years later i got an acoustic again i kind of favored the electric for a long time i feel like acoustic guitars are just kind of unwieldy like you got to put your arm like around the huge they're like physically uncomfortable at least yeah my playing them i think yeah i used to feel that way for a while i felt i guess you probably get used to it yeah Yeah, I like it now. I like both electric and acoustic just about equally now. Do you own both? Uh, I did. Do you own either? Yeah, I I have some. I have a couple electric guitars, and I did have an acoustic, but um, made the mistake just a few months ago of eating pudding out of it. No, nope. <laughs> close. Chili. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, um, I uh, tried to take it along on a road trip and didn't have a case for it and oh. it literally got smashed to pieces well just no um just kind of cracked okay by the all, like the tetris arrangement we had in the back of the car or something yeah yeah it got that happened before we even left milwaukee it was like i'm smashed by the other stuff you're bringing yeah and that was my fault yeah you know that's why that's why they have cases yeah <laughs> but so i haven't had an acoustic for a, a couple months now but i'm gonna get one soon yeah. I brought a ukulele with me to New Zealand uh, nice. several years back as my, like, actually brought a harmonica too. So I had some instruments to, like, oh, nice. pass the time while I was wandering. Did you, can I ask one? <laughs> Did you happen to, like, my one of my goals is, I still have not remembered to do it, but to just play a harmonica on a mountainside. 
Have you, did you get to I don't do think that? I did that on Mountainside. I oh, was okay. on Mountainside, but I don't think yeah. I pulled out the harmonica for that. Yeah. So, no. All right. I, okay. I probably didn't because I tried to play the harmonica a little bit. I never had any formal practice or even mm. looked up any guides on how to play harmonica. Oh, okay. I was just trying to figure it out for myself. Yeah. They're really hard. Like, yeah. I can't play harmonica. They're really, they're really weird. I can't. You must have to, like, form your mouth in a certain way to only blow out of the very one note that you need. And I couldn't yeah. do that. It'd always yeah. just be a, a jumble of notes, and it sounded awful. Yeah. It's like... I'd. I had a book or something that kind of taught me the right like embouchure. What's um, the word? Embouchure. Wow, it's I haven't like, heard that one. Yeah, it's um. It's what used, does that mean exactly? Just like how mouth you formation. Yeah, how you shape your mouth and your lips to okay. get the sound you need. Is that used only for music? Like I think so, but it might maybe not. Like would know. that be learned? Used a, a word that I use for language too, like to say like the French like mm, oui sound. Maybe. Do you use? Yeah. Is that embouchure, or is yeah. it only if your mouth is pressed up to an instrument? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm asking you questions. Yeah. Really I don't know the answer either, <laughs> but, but I'm, that, I'm curious. I'd be interested to know that. Yeah. yeah, but that's for like any kind of instrument. Yeah, trumpet or yeah. saxophone, harmonica. Well, yeah. that, that one to my knowledge yeah. bank. Yeah. So oh. you learned how to play harmonica a little bit? A little bit, yeah. The coolest thing I learned was like kind of a one of the classic like... Like prison blues or something? Yes, yeah. Like kind of the like how they bend the note. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the iconic harmonica. Thing, <laughs> yeah, so I, I could do that a little bit. Here's a band name for anybody that is uh, a harmonica band that I just thought of. Might be taken, but call it Iconica. Oh, yes. Iconic harmonica. <laughs> Never mind. Bad like idea. It. No, I like it. <laughs> so you were talking about your brief life story of the past five years. Yeah. And we got sidetracked on talking about music in general. Yeah. So you were in a band, though, in Eau Claire. You were, you were in a few bands. Yeah. So you were in the one um, Icon Empress? Uh, Idol Empress. Idol. I have Icon in my head. <laughs> Idol Empress. Yeah. Um, and you were in another one. What was the other one? Uh, the other one was called Softly Deer. Like D-E-A-R. Did that have a style you guys played to? Or was that just also just indie rock? Yeah, also general kind of indie sound. But that one was a little more varied as far as like the, yeah. the genres that we covered. How many members were in that one? That was a five-piece group. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I was just guitar in that band, so, and there was another guitarist already, so it was kind of like more sitting back and like picking my spots Yeah, to play. Was one of like, you like the designated rhythm or lead guitar? Kind of just, yeah, like by default it kind of happened because like my, the guy who wrote the songs, who's my friend Tyler, he was... He was just not really interested in learning how to solo. He was just yeah. like, I'm just going to play chords and sing my songs that I'm writing. Yeah. You go ahead and do whatever you want. So I would I would play like the lead stuff. Yeah. or like, I mean, It makes sense if he's the singer doing the rhythm. Like right. That. Yeah. It's hard to. <laughs> I never understood how people, I never really tried, I guess, but I, I would probably fail. Yeah. I never understood how people could play the guitar, mm-hmm. especially if it was not rhythm, play the guitar and sing at the same time. That yeah. just seems like. I guess in the same way people are confused what, how you can separate all the movements of your limbs if you're playing drum set. Yeah. And that's like one of the first things you need to learn how to do uh-huh. in order to play drum set. Yeah. So it might be the same kind of thing going on, yeah. but still just playing guitar and singing. I guess you, both of them, you kind of get to know them so well that it's just second nature to play this song and sing at the same time. Yeah. But from the outside perspective, it seems like uh-huh. a feat. Yeah. It's definitely something to like, you have to work at. Yeah. And it is like the split brain. Yeah. sort of thinking or like using both sides 
Yeah, I think the hardest thing, obviously, rhythm's pretty easy. Lead guitar's pretty. I don't know a whole lot of people who do that. Although I did just watch like today. I mean, there's like a genre that is known as like math rock. So it's just like rock, but like really like crazy time signatures oh, okay. or like just technical things on the guitar. And like this dude, I watched a video today of this guy. He's like playing these like really technical like tapping things, lead parts, but like singing. And he was doing it was like a punk band. Yeah. But they were just like really technically proficient and like that was pretty impressive. Yeah. So like doing that and singing is hard, and I think playing bass and singing is hard too. Yeah, because bass is like, I don't know, you're already holding down like rhythm with bass, but you're also you're holding down harmony and yeah, sometimes too, and it's a lot to focus on. But I think bass is probably one of the most undervalued aspects of a band usually. Yeah, like people overlook the bass, and then like the few bands that like put a lot of focus on the bassist. Yeah. I think they're usually the best ones. Like, yeah. like I mentioned rush earlier. Like, yeah, I love rush yeah. and um, Getty Lee. Getty Lee. Yeah. Getty Lee is an amazing yeah. bassist. He's incredible. I saw rush live once. Oh, he did. It was wow. really incredible. My friend took me, he had an extra ticket. I would, but I had been listening to rush with that friend like all summer. So yeah. he, he turned me on to them and then took me to a concert. <laughs> Yeah. I know Rush on. was at Summerfest just a few years back, but I didn't go for oh yeah some that was I did reason I saw them at Summerfest, but I don't know. I think it was probably like further back than further that. back than that. It was uh after they <laughs> after their album Snakes and Arrows. Oh yeah, that was what two thousand nine or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, someone did Neil Peart just Neil Peart died? died. Yeah, yeah, which is sad because yeah. he was also an awesome drummer uh-huh. and you know just a guy. R.I.P. Neil Peart. R.I.P. I mean, sad for another reason, too, because now you can't really see Rush anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might still do tours with a different drummer, but yeah. you can't see original Rush. Yeah, I wonder if they even would, because, like... Yeah, just... That, probably not, I would guess. Yeah, because, like, Neil Peart's one of the main... Like, it's a three-man band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's an icon, yeah. iconoclastic type yeah. of guy <laughs> with his style and... Yeah, the, all three of them are like so good at their instruments. Yeah, it's Alex cool. Lifeson is that the guitarist? Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah, they're great. Agreed. Also, side note: Have you ever seen the movie "I Love You, Man"? Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh I, yeah, I, yeah. I love the Rush like they're just side obsessed story. with Rush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're playing Rush in like his basement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, awesome go, they go to a concert too. It's yeah. At the end. And... My oldest brother, um, who. I don't think plays so much anymore, but when I was young and when he was like in high school and like college age, yeah, he played bass and I always viewed him as like prodigious at bass. Yeah. He was like really good. Mm-hmm. They, he, him and his friends had a Rush cover band when he was nice. in high school wow. and they like played at the you know rock band or rock show or whatever, the <laughs> talent show and all yeah. that. Yeah. They, they were really good except for the singing. My brother was, was trying to sing <laughs> Getty Lee's super high pitched voice. Yeah. <laughs> and that was probably... The only part of the ensemble that didn't turn out as well. But that's cool, though. It's that, a hard voice to replicate. Yeah. Hard band. That's impressive that they got the instrumental part down, though. Yeah. Well, they were yeah. pretty technically proficient at music. Nice. Like, my brother was really good. The guitarist was really good. The guitarist, um, his favorite band was Green Day. So then he was also in, like, a Green Day cover band, and he would sing. Yeah. But he could actually pull off the, like, intonation, the vocals of Billy Joel Armstrong oh, really nice. well. Oh, cool. So he was, like... He got he had the voice down. Yeah, in that one. 
that is a fun one to do. I've tried that myself. I don't know if I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> well, I'm not going to ask you. To. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't like putting people on the spot because I don't right. like being on the spot. So, although I did mention before that I don't like having to perform music in front of people. Mm hmm. For instance, in my world music class right now, there's been a few times where we've had to sing, yeah. and it's like a group of six oh, students. Yeah, so it's very uncomfortable. I'm I not, bet. I'm not <laughs> confident in my singing skills. In fact, I'm confident that I'm a bad singer. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like doing it in front of people. Yeah, and then having to do it there, it's like kind of weird. So yeah, if anybody asked me to sing on the spot, I would probably give a categorical no to that one. Yeah, although I have done it before. Okay. I've been in musicals and had to do like solo songs. Oh, nice. Which is in some way not as terrible because you know you got the, like the whole crowd and like the darkness mm -hmm. it's not like a personal one-on-one -on -one where i know like you're judging me right now for my music it's like yeah. this faceless crowd of people that yeah seem half real yeah so it's a different experience but still bad right i still dislike it i'd rather be, not be in a musical gotcha yeah okay that's not quite right i like doing plays and yeah. i would like i like being in musicals yeah but i prefer to be in a non-musical play than a musical one yeah that's what i mean i've actually never been in a play of any kind it seems like it'd be a lot of pressure yeah. but have you ever done any acting <laughs> only um improv in what context uh like were you like an in improv class or like improv theater or something like that yeah i was in um i took like three improv classes um just from my friends but they were like they knew what they were doing. Um, they were in a group. Well, so one of these guys is the drummer in the, my band, Idol Empress. Yeah. My I friend. can see how it's probably helpful to be good at improv and be a musician. Oh, yeah. Like, he's yeah, he's an incredible musical improviser as yeah. well. And, like, we, we've had fun jamming for years. And Lauren is just awesome, too. She's a natural. At, yeah, I mean, the key to imp improvisation, of whether it's, like, improv comedy or music, is just listening and also like saying yes yes and other, yes and <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah you know that okay yeah yes and to other ideas and then the most advanced beyond yes and is um i know this because mm. so it's like in that way you're looking at characters who have a history together and yeah they already know why they said this person said the other thing that kind of, yeah. I don't think I was ever all that great at comedic improv. Yeah. We did it in my drama class every mm -hmm. Friday yeah. back in high school. I took drama like all four years of high school because it was fun. Yeah. And I like acting. Mm -hmm. And every Friday we'd have improv. And we'd play lots of different games. Yeah. Like like there's so many different ways you can you can do improv. Mm -hmm. And it was always a really fun time, but I feel like I kind of I liked being an audience member more than I liked being on the stage because yeah. I feel like people could make me laugh more than I could make them laugh. Yeah. Yeah. I did three performances. Like at the end of each class, we did a performance Oh yeah. Um, with our troupe, pretty decent size audiences, like probably like 30 people each time. Yeah. It was really nerve wracking, but also like when you do get a laugh, it just feels amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like you're just like, cause it's not, and they, my friends, teachers, like, I was saying they're in an improv group and they had been doing it since high school. And for a while they were touring all over the country to do improv wow. like, and like going to improv festivals and like just building connections with other improv yeah. scenes. And like, did they have a name for their improv group? Yeah, it was Glassworks Improv and they don't really, 
I don't think they've performed for a while, but they're all still friends. But yeah, they're just like really good at their craft and they put in a lot of practice and like took it really seriously. Yeah. So I always had a lot of fun watching them, but yeah, to perform it is really nerve wracking, but it feels great. And they, they do tell you also to not think of it as improv comedy. Well, another thing too is like there's, there's short form improv and then there's long form improv. Yeah. And short form is the games and stuff. Yeah. And like whose line is it anyway? And then long form is uh like making entire scenes. Yeah. Entire scenes. Um sometimes an entire with, improv play. Yeah, some right, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes a whole play, sometimes with no prompt at all. Like yeah. some of the people who do this will sometimes just walk on stage, someone says something and then you start and yeah. you build a whole like reality i think all we did for those performances was took like one word from the audience and then yeah. we went and it was just like yeah it was super fun um oh but they say for long and long form especially like it's best to not think of it as comedy and just not try to make people laugh yeah i mean because like the comedy part is honestly the the things that get the most laughs are like things that are just that seem like so real where like the relationship seems so real yeah. and someone says something and people just like think it's hilarious not so much because of what they say but because like wow they just came up with that but it yeah. seems yeah, yeah something that comes like naturally and organically rather yeah. than trying to force it right yeah and then some there are certainly times for like being all zany on yeah. stage and that can that can get laughs but yeah sometimes you see like college freshman improv groups and they're always just like trying to be zany yeah, 100% of the time and yeah. it's like all right this doesn't feel realistic so yeah the best moments are like when one of the improv actors does something that they don't even realize was hilarious yeah and then they like quickly they're after do and the audience does too it's like yeah it just came about like right. they, they weren't even trying to be funny right it just happened i feel like I guess I haven't taken an improv class per se. Like we did improv every week, like I was saying, but I haven't taken a class dedicated to improv. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me almost like practicing improv would be kind of counterintuitive, counterintuitive, yeah. especially if you were like part of an improv crew. Yeah. I feel like the more that you practice, the harder it would be to actually maintain it being improvisation. Yeah. Because you've, you feel like you've got this growing pool of scenes that you did before. Uh-huh actually then it was improvisation that you might be tempted to draw upon again yeah so like to recreate something that you did last friday during your practice mm -hmm. when really it's just trying to be like new every mm -hmm. time and so yeah. i feel like the more you practice the more it's the less it's becoming improv yeah in a way that's kind of that's probably true from well yeah that's true i think i mean i guess you need However, to practice in the sense that like you need to know how the other people are as actors so you can yeah. play well off each other yeah but I feel like there there probably comes a certain point where you should stop practicing. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't like just use up all your good stuff. Yeah. I think that's interesting. That's a cool point because there's that's a issue with music too. With musical improvisation is like you practice imp improvising with a, a band. But then when you're performing and you're improvising on stage, there's like a lot of jazz is improv. So yeah. But all, we did some improv with even my like rock bands and stuff. Yeah, I think like the way around that issue is just to be like not afraid to draw little bits of stuff that you've, you've already done. Already done, but like 
it truly just like doesn't feel good to just take entire like ideas and then regurgitate them and pretend they're improv because it doesn't feel honest yes so you're just like i don't think i think like if you're just with people who are honest and want and have like integrity about their art yeah they won't you won't fall into that because it'll just be like okay we'll take a little bit maybe but then we'll just quickly go another direction right but i feel like even if you are like honest you're trying to do that i think the more that you would practice the harder it would become to be honest because like you've oh, got yeah. this growing pool of things in your mind that you know you've done before and you're, you're yeah. trying to avoid those. Sure, yeah. So like the more the more that you have done before, <laughs> the less that you can do now. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. You can always try to make some new spin on it, but right. yeah, feel like in, in that effort to be to be honest and to be real, you're like, oh, there's all this stuff that I just thought of, but I've done, I did that last week yeah. in the same situation. I don't want to do it again. Right. Yeah, my friends in that improv group could probably like tell you way more about that because yeah. they did it for years and- I could see them evolving over the course of those years where it looked like they were just trying to get out of old, like, yeah, like routines, comfortable kind of like routines on the stage. Like yeah. people would, it's like, as soon as it started to feel like they had like a style up there, they would like change, change it. it up. Yeah. And like my, my friend Elliot was, I mean, they're all good at this, but yeah, sometimes they would just drop something in the middle of a scene where it was just like something really serious or like dark or something and like turn it in a direction because they were for a while they were really goofy and zany zany and they're like really good at that but then they started to move in more like dark directions and just be like have scenes about like affairs and like yeah or like strained child relationships and like and then it would like turn serious but then also there would be like these dark humor moments would just be hilarious and like people i don't know it was just like so yeah i think that is probably something improv actors struggle with i think with music it's a little easier to just keep exploring new territory because like i feel like there's a lot of possibilities yeah there might be less restriction in music because it's not like yeah it's just sound it's not like yeah it's trying i mean either way i guess you're not really trying to be funny but it's not even like trying to convey specific meaning i guess yeah well okay so you said you mentioned the honesty thing and i got really excited yeah because it reminded me of an experience i had so i feel like this improvisation in music and in comedy Mm -hmm. it also really relates to teaching because i feel like i don't know if you're a high school teacher or whatever you're teaching multiple classes a day yeah in order to enjoy your work you don't want to just repeat it be repeating the same exact lecture all day yeah you have to introduce some improv into it. You have to mm-hmm. be like extemporaneous speech giving. So you have a rough outline, but then you fill it in with your own creative material yeah. each time. So each specific session of teaching is different, yeah. even though you're conveying the same basic information. Yeah. So not to, I guess, sound like, ooh, I'm a traveler again, <laughs> yeah. but whatever. I... um went back to my high school French class or French teacher mm-hmm. to like teach a cl- the French class for the day because I had gone to France and my teacher wanted me to like tell the class about my experience there. Mm-hmm. So it was just two classes that day. Mm-hmm. So I went in for the first one and I was talking to the class about stuff and I was like telling them all about it and I was making some jokes and <laughs> I got good reactions from them. They were laughing. And then the second class came around. Yeah. And 
I was starting it off and doing the thing, and then I give the same joke that I gave in the first one, yeah. and then I got a laugh, but I felt like right when I did it, I was like, <laughs> I shouldn't have, like, that wasn't good. So then I changed my tactic for that second class. Yeah. I wasn't trying to, I was trying to avoid the same thing I just did an hour before. Yeah. So overall, it was definitely less funny and probably less enjoyable for the students because I was trying to, like, not fall into the same shell yeah. and the same routine. So it was less comedic and... I don't know, I was just trying to do a different thing. Yeah. And I felt like, oh, if this is like what teaching is like, if I don't know if I could be a teacher. I don't like in that moment I was like, I don't even know if I could be a stand up comedian. Oh, because yeah. a stand up comedian, you have your set. Yeah. And you might introduce a few jokes here and there based off of your audience. Yeah. But for the most part, your set is yeah. set. And I feel like I couldn't just like tell an hour's worth of jokes that are the same jokes that I know so well. And uh -huh. to me, might even no longer be funny anymore because I've told them 6,000 times. Yeah. I feel like that would be kind of soul draining in a way. Yeah. It's, that's an interesting, that probably just means you're like, you in particular are best suited for more improvisational things. Yeah. Because, yeah, the way I've heard people talk about stand-up comedy is like, they'll do a whole tour well, I don't know, the big one, the big stand-up people anyway. Yeah. Like, they do, like, a whole tour of an hour of material, and they film the special at the end. Yeah. And that whole time, they're, like, telling the same jokes, but they're honing them even yeah. more, more and yeah. more, and they're, like, trying to make them just... It's yeah, they're like, trying to make them land the best they can. Yeah, yeah. They're, like, crafting, like, these precise, you know... Yeah. It's, like, each is, time their audience is a focus group, and yeah. know, they're trying to... Which is cool. Deliver the best material it can. Yeah, it's cool, but it does seem like an entirely different like art form almost to, to improv. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it is. Yeah, that's an interesting thing too. Um, so like with comedy, improv, and stand up, there's a clear uh, like you go to a show and you know whether it's one or the other. Yeah, but I think sometimes with music, like a band will play something improvised or composed, and sometimes it's unclear like, yeah and so i think i've always just thought that's really interesting because like sometimes when you see a band that's like improvising so well together it can sound composed it can and i've had that vice experience versa too but, yeah yeah one that stands up my memory is yeah. also at summerfest i keep on bringing that up mm -hmm. if you don't know summerfest is just they call it the world's biggest music festival yeah. i don't know in what terms they define that yeah. Like the most amount of people, the most amount of performers, the long, the, like the the time frame, yeah. the most amount of days, uh, the physically biggest in, in terms of kilometers. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. It's something, I guess. <laughs> anyway, it happens in Wisconsin every summer, except for last this summer because yeah. you know, coronavirus. But so lots of people show up, and it was maybe five six years ago. Atlas Genius mm -hmm. showed up. You know, Australian indie band that was on the radio a few years back. I've heard of them. And I saw Atlas Genius, and I had knew their, known their songs because they had only had one album out at the time. So they like played basically all their songs from the album, except when they were playing a few of them. One in particular, they started the song as normal, and then it like morphed and like changed. And I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. And they did it for another 20 minutes. Whoa. They improvised. Yeah. It, I don't know if it was actually improvisation. <laughs> it could have just been... They tr they have a twenty minute version of the song that they play and they yeah. like they, that's what they always do. Yeah. But it seemed like improv and I can't tell the difference. But they morphed just a version of their song into a far longer thing where it was instrumental for twenty minutes. The, yeah. the guy stopped singing and he just focused on guitar. Yeah. And it was super jazzy. Nice. And <laughs> it was like if that was a song on the album, that would be my favorite song. Yeah. 
Seriously? is like more musically talented than the rest of the stuff they're doing. Yeah. And they're, I enjoy the band, but that moment I was like, this is an amazing concert. Yeah. <laughs> like this is more than I thought I would get. Yeah. Oh, it's great. I love that kind of thing. I've gone to quite, I've gone to like seven or eight uh, shows of the band Fish. Oh yeah. And they do that all the time. That's kind of, that's what they're known for is oh, like okay. taking their song. Cause they still release studio albums that are with like normal length songs, but yeah. Yeah, they'll stretch five minute songs into twenty minutes, forty minutes, yeah. forty five. Like, I think Sounds the cool. longest jam they've ever done was like an hour. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah, usually I, I like see an entire two hour concert of like a talented band just yeah jam. Yeah, yeah they're great because it's like also they have just, they have so many instruments. Like the keyboardist has like keyboards. What was it like the cir- all, all around, around in a circle? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That kind of thing. And like the bit yeah they all have these like pedals and so they just go through so many different like sonic landscapes yeah through, while they're improvising so it's not only they're exploring like harmony and melody and rhythm they're exploring timbre you know and like just textures yeah. of sound in general and just creating like vastly different moods but like just doing it very seamlessly yeah, and there's like a light show, and everybody's smoking pot. And it's <laughs> not the band, but yeah, well, maybe the maybe back in the day, I don't know. But yeah, it's a cool thing. Obviously, the Grateful Dead were yeah. kind of their predecessors with that kind of approach. Yeah, they were a little more rooted in like Americana folk music yeah. and rock. Everybody who's but, ever been to a Grateful Dead concert always talks about how absolutely amazing. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and that, I mean both those bands yeah just developed that was just like their whole thing was their live show was everything and people would even start to just follow the band and then like sell things sell grilled cheese sandwiches <laughs> in the parking lot or whatever yeah. to like make money i do think uh a lot of the i don't know what percentage but a decent percentage of the the fans of both of those bands were probably like college kids you know getting money from their parents to to live yeah so yeah they were know. like uh what's the what's the word trust fund trust fund yeah. babies yeah. who are trying to live the hippie yeah you know roadie life or whatever yeah i do think that that's a decent percentage of the of the fan base back when at the height of both those bands popularity but like it's interesting because like you'll go to a fish show now and it's like it's just all those kids that, who are they're just grown up now yeah. and they have jobs and like they 40 50 year olds yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is an older crowd now but there are still young kids who come out and discover the band and that's what i did yeah their shows are just a real just a whole experience <laughs> like it's a they take you on a like especially the second set once it gets dark it just feels like they they're just taking you for a musical journey journey and yeah. you're just along for the ride it's really great yeah. that kind of thing is really cool in concerts but then there's also like i feel like the polar opposite spectrum where it's very planned out yeah where it's like a show basically uh-huh. for instance like lady gaga i saw her yeah one time and it was very much like that she would have like you know set changes costume changes yeah and like almost like it was a story yeah. to the whole performance yeah and awesome. yeah it was it was like more of like almost like a play in a way mm-hmm. it wasn't quite like a play but it felt reminiscent of that. Yeah. And so it, there wasn't probably any spontaneous improvisation there. Right. But it still is like taking you on a journey that 
you don't necessarily get from the average concert. Right. Yeah, I, I love that kind of stuff too. And I think there's just, there's merits to both improvisation and composition. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's kind of, I mean, there there are people in the music world who say that they're kind of the same thing because it's like you're just, improvisation is just instantaneous composition or something. Because oh, yeah. you're like, you're just drawing from like somewhere within yourself. But I do think there are a little different, but yeah, <laughs> like the, because a lot of com- composing is like honing it, you know, over time. Yeah. Making edits. Yeah, you can't really do that when you're improv. Right. Were you ever in a jazz band? I know you said you took the jazz class. Um, that was like one credit. That yeah. was like an ensemble. Were you ever in like a smaller three friends jazz band? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, there were some like places around Eau Claire that would have like jazz at dinner, at the dinner hour or whatever, restaurants and bars. Yeah. So I didn't do a ton of that, but I did, I did some of it with like small comp they called them combos so it was like three to six people usually playing for tips or <laughs> what instruments are usually comp- like using like a six-person jazz band usually it'll be drums bass piano sax sax yes at least one horn usually yeah. but sax trumpets. guitar oh, trumpets yeah. trombone even it's like you can that's the cool thing about a jazz combos it could be anything it could even be like no bass and just like a piano playing the bass yeah and then there's like a weird like lute inst- like yeah. exotic instrument or something you ever taken part in like a scat jazz band uh <laughs> no but there was a the the head of the jazz department at uw eau claire could could really scat he was a he was a goofy guy. I remember him scatting. Not, I wasn't in the band, but it was like the the top tier jazz band. Yeah, did a performance, and he came out and did did some scatting, which is like it was just goofy because you know he's just this goofy looking old white guy. But and it's like jazz is like it has its roots in as a Black American art form. Yeah, so he looked like a goof, but he uh, he was really good. At, at scatting and like he clearly has studied like the music for a long time yeah but yeah scatting is cool the biggest example of it at... that i think of is like uh what is it louis prima's uh pennies from heaven okay i uh, i don't know i've heard of louis prima but i don't know if i've heard that he, it's not all entirely scat there's just like a scat section in that song nice that is great louis armstrong did a fair amount of it in between like sometimes he'd sing just do little bits of it in between singing or trumpet solos. Yeah. I think Ella Fitzgerald did some. Yeah, it's cool. So back to your five-year journey. Yes. Um, you're in Eau Claire. <laughs> what happened after that? Because you're no longer in Eau Claire. So right. There must have been some course of events. Yeah, I was living up in Eau Claire. I was um, in some bands. I worked at a food co-op, like a tiny one. That was really fun. Just learned a lot about local food movements and like sustainable food movements at some point i moved to minneapolis because my two friends in my band idol empress they were moving there and i wanted to keep playing music with them and some of my other friends like all moved there like all at the same time so i lived there for like 
about a year, maybe a little more. I don't know. It was, yeah, about a year. You know, I just kind of just reached a point, I think, where like my friends and I, like we still talk and we still play shows like maybe a couple times a year. But Didn't you do one semi-recently? Yeah, and I think the most recent was December. Okay. We did. And then we were going to have one in May. Or no, no. Yeah, March or something. Or, But then the virus yeah. happened. But yeah, we do still talk and play. But I think we were all just kind of like, well, first of all, in Minneapolis, it was just such a huge city. And we were all in like, well, I w- they were kind of close. But I was in this completely other corner of the city. And I worked a really exhausting job at UPS. And <laughs> just, it was hard to get in. And just the weather there is even worse. Were you worse. a mail delivery guy? <laughs> no. I always kind of wanted that job, to be honest. No. That sounds cool. Yeah, I was just in the warehouse throwing the packages into the trucks, semi-trucks. It's like the big trailers. Yeah. That was, I don't know, I just, I didn't see them as often as I wanted to. And then it felt like we were all kind of just ready for, well, I I don't know, I was ready for something different. A new chapter of your life? Yeah, because I just wasn't socializing with a lot of people at that point up in Minneapolis. It was just like a weird move for me. I felt really at home in Eau Claire, but then Minneapolis was just like a huge city and yeah. never really found like a community there like I had in Eau Claire. So I just decided to move back to uh, move back here to Milwaukee. And I believe I met you like a month after that. Oh, you the, just moved here? Yeah, then? I had just moved back in July, I think. July 2018? Yeah. Yeah. So in your uh, band's heyday, mm-hmm. or whatever that would mean, how often do you think you were getting together to practice or perform? It's a good question. We practiced a lot in the early years, yeah. or in like the first year, I think. We'd practice like maybe once or twice a week, honestly. Yeah. And then obviously at home, we would always practice a lot. And then there were sometimes it was more than twice a week. But then we just started like playing more shows and yeah just that's stopped. like practice on its own yeah we just kind of stopped practicing because we had the, we had the songs down and we knew how to improvise together um as well so we didn't practice as much in the later the latter half of our time but played at one point we were playing shows probably like twice a month or something which sometimes more it was just like we had a really there was like a really thriving music scene in eau claire yeah and we were hosting shows at like our basement in our house i don't know if i lived with all three of them well once there was a point where i actually my friends and i had next door houses so that was a lot of fun because it was like friends the tv show yeah (laughs) just all your best friends live right next to each other so yeah and we we would just pop in yeah you know it was great (laughs) just cramering each other constantly or whatever that was really cool because we had shows in both of those basements. Yeah. Mostly just one of them, but and we named the basement. We gave the basements human. We gave the houses human names. One house was Vivian, and the other was Paul, uh, named after the former residents of the houses. <laughs> I think Vivian was dead. So oh, it, her ghost was that, her residing. Ghost was her, yeah. yeah. We had this like. My friend worked at a print a photo print shop and. He just printed out this massive poster of this actress named Vivian Vance and like 
it was just this like 1930s glamour shot of her face like just her face vaguely creepy it was pretty creepy (laughs) and we hung that on the stairwell leading down to the basement we had a lot of plants and goofy decorations it was really fun we actually were able to draw a lot of people to those shows because there was other basements in the you know claire yeah two that were hosting shows and like it was this really cool underground network and but then there'd also be a lot of shows at bars and at like parks festivals we played a lot of shows for a while and then kind of just started slowing down and then moved to minneapolis and played even less often but did you play mostly bass in these bands in idol empress i played bass all the time live and then like sometimes i'd play guitar as well on the recordings like some extra yeah. guitar on top. Um, in Softly Deer, I played guitar live and then like sometimes bass on the recordings. Actually, most of the recordings I played bass on, actually. What do you I've... prefer to play? Um, How many strings? That's a good question. I I got to the point where I liked them both equally. I think I probably like, I haven't played as much bass lately, so I like guitar a lot again. Yeah. They're both wonderful. Bass is like, you know, it's rhythm. It's a rhythm instrument as much as it is a, a stringed, like, harmony instrument. So, you know. Do you think you've gotten your 10,000 hours? I think maybe for, I don't know. What is, like, what does that add up to as far as, like, days? Let's see. If, if you think of it in terms <laughs> of a full-time job. Okay. Eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks in a year. It's 2,080 hours a year. So if you spend five years on a full-time job, then Mm. according to the 10,000-hour rule, then you've mastered it. Okay. So it's been about 15 years since I started playing. So that would be at a third time. Three-ish, less than three hours a day for five days a week anyway. I don't know. Maybe you could think of that in terms of like one hour a day for 15 years. Yeah, probably then. I feel like I've probably averaged one hour a day because some days I've played many hours. <laughs> Actually, no, you would need two hours a day for 15 years. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I'm probably approaching it, but I don't know. If, I'm, I don't know. Probably not there yet. But get like, there get... by the time you're 40. Yeah. I 35. think so. Yeah, I think so. Also in the book Outliers um, yeah. by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. It might be in that same chapter. I'm not sure. But I was talking about the Beatles. And the book is about multiple success stories and how people's success is attributed to more than just their talent or their effort. Mm-hmm. That's a factor. Like, you know, you need 10,000 hours, but it's also looking into what circumstances arise that allow people to become experts. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, it was looking at, like, Bill Gates and how he got his success. Mm-hmm. He was given access to, like, the most sophisticated computer technology, right. fr- complete free access when normally it cost per hour to use these computers when oh. he was, like, 12. Oh, wow. So it's like right when this stuff came out and right when he was super young, he was given unlimited access to it. Yeah. So by the time that he was in college, he was already an expert. Wow. He already got his 10,000 yeah. hours in. Got it. So I was looking at the Beatles mm-hmm. and through a fortuitous series of events, they got the opportunity to play in Amsterdam just oh, all yeah. the time, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were they would play 16-hour shows, oh my God. like five days a week. <laughs> yeah. And they did that for like two years almost. Wow. So they were just constantly playing all the time. And that was before anybody knew of their existence. Yeah. Like that was before they came to America, before they got popular. Yeah. So by the time 
their first actual like album came out that anybody knows, they already were masters at wow. their music. They've been practicing so much. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I knew about that. I didn't know it was 16 hours a day, though. That's insane. I mean, it wasn't consistently 16 hours oh, a day, yeah. but there were, there were like weeks stretches where oh, they okay. would play just all their waking yeah. hours. Yeah, like they'd I be eating it. sandwiches while, while still playing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know about those years because I used to like study. Well, not study, but I just would. I learned a lot about the Beatles and yeah. their history for fun because I got into them when I was in like middle school. So I was like trying to devour all the information I could. Yeah, they're like, I believe that. That's amazing. They're just, yeah, they were like, they knew how to craft a song so well and perform it. They're they're a cool case study too because it's just like, they're basic. They basically went from like pop fame to like being a band that is like pushing oh, the yeah. boundaries of music yeah. and recording. And like, so I feel like it, it's just like you don't see that very often usually it's like a young pop band comes along and makes all the young people really excited and then they just fade into obscurity yeah i feel like the beatles they maybe really would lingered yeah i feel like they would have done that but then they like went to india and yeah. <laughs> took psychedelics and yeah. like started making weird music yeah they're pushing the envelope yeah i remember i was watching a documentary once and i think it was just on the 60s in general mm -hmm. but um, if i remember all this stuff right anyway this is how it went yeah. in like the 60s or whatever most music used acoustic guitar and not electric okay and then at one of the beatles um concerts with like a shit ton of people there uh -huh. like a crazy amount of people they decided to just start playing with electric guitar like uh -huh. mid-concert and they got like all these boos from the audience yeah because like, everyone was like oh what is this weird like <laughs> this isn't what pop music is like i think maybe I think maybe you're thinking of Bob Dylan. Oh, okay. Bob Dylan, I think did did like yeah. a similar thing. Yeah. But I think the Beatles also did oh, it okay. too. I believe it. Yeah. Um, I you know I could be wrong. No, but yeah. Either Bob Dylan yeah. or the Beatles. Let's yeah. say it's either one. Yeah. They just decided to just you know like fuck you crowd. We're yeah. gonna play the electric guitar, and then within like a a year, then it became like yeah. everybody loves it. Right. Yeah. So you just gotta like force the audience to listen yeah. to it, and then they realize, oh, this is actually good too. Yeah. Exactly. So instead of just like giving in to whatever the audience thinks they want at that time, right. they probably would have gone into irrelevance, but they decided to actually go their own way. Yeah. That's a cool... Yeah, I've, I've heard from a lot of artists who perform, whether it's like improv or music, to like not... Don't underestimate your audience. Yeah. And their like ability to like... Have good musical taste. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and just like grasp the, the stuff you're doing, the like advanced stuff yeah. like yeah you don't need to like play it safe right yeah it's like people get it they're smarter than often smarter than we <laughs> give them credit, credit for, for so yeah. yeah yeah i think it's for me i feel like it goes both ways in like a paradoxical way yeah like people are at once smarter and more stupid than you allow for like yeah. it just depends on the circumstances yeah sometimes like there actually is wisdom in crowds, but then a lot of the times it's like, yeah, it goes the complete reverse direction. It's just craziness, just in yeah. this like mob mentality kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think we basically caught up on your uh, five-year story that has taken an hour to tell, but because yeah. we've been <laughs> going off on musical tangents. Yeah. So you said you also wanted to talk about sustainability and ecology. You mentioned that once briefly. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you get interested in that? That's a good question. Uh, 
Because, I don't know, I wasn't, like, a kid who went camping and stuff. Yeah. Like, I, I just grew up here in Milwaukee, and my parents weren't very outdoorsy. Not in, like, a nature sense. I mean, we'd go outside to... My dad would take us, like, golfing. and But we just didn't go camping or anything. Yeah. I think I went camping once as a kid with my family, but it was, like, because another family took us along. They did it all the time and stuff. So I think just, like, growing up in a city, and then I remember, like learning starting to learn about environmental issues in high school and then like the end of high school i took a trip to backpacking trip to glacier national park with like my two best friends from high school and that was pretty i'd say impactful (laughs) or in a positive sense as far as like my uh that's like a formative experience yeah definitely because i just never seen mountains and i had never yeah the first time you see mountains it's amazing (laughs) yeah it's incredible just like had so much excitement just driving up to them and i mean you still do every time you do but like the first time is and then when you get in there it's just like such a biodiverse place it's like it feels like it's not like it feels like an alien planet but it's actually the cities that are are the alien alien part you know it's like this is just the planet that has been here all along we've been deprived of experiences in biodiverse places yeah clean air clean water (laughs) like yeah that's yes yeah infuriates me what's that infuriates the lack of clean air yeah and clean water and poisoned nature because like anywhere in a city or even miles around a city or probably most of the continental United States, mm-hmm. just covered in a layer of pesticides. Yeah, that's yeah, it's wild, and that's, I guess, to go off of what I was mentioning earlier about how I've worked at a co-op. Yeah, so I've learned a fair amount about what's wrong with the current like industrial agricultural system and what some of the the new models being presented are like for um, regenerative agriculture or whatever you want to call it, permaculture. Yeah. There's all kinds of approaches. So that's like, that stuff gives me a lot of hope, but I I do like worry that like not enough people are getting on board with it. Yes. In enough time. Things aren't happening fast enough. Right. And not large enough. Yeah. Quantities. Yeah. I mean, it's like, even when you think really big things are happening, because it's like left and right, there's like Netflix documentaries about sustainability and, the David Attenborough one that came out recently is quite good. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Is what what was that called? It's, it's called David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. Nice. Cool. And it's like just about his life basically. Yeah. And the change he's seen on Earth within the past ninety three years. Yeah. That he's been alive. Nice. Which is depressing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like there's all these documentaries coming out, but most of the world doesn't seem to be changing a whole lot. Yeah. And I wonder if it's just gonna be like we're just forced to change our ways and along the way there's going to be a lot of conflict yes that's what i see it's lots sad. of wars and death and genocides over natural resources probably mm-hmm. are coming in the next 50 years for us yeah as you know land is now submerged yeah. in water along coastal territories that are below sea level mm-hmm. and as agriculture in those places is no longer possible Mm-hmm. And we've depleted our soil from monoculture farming. Mm-hmm. We need to turn towards other countries who probably want to hoard their resources and natural mm-hmm. disasters happen more. 
and generally humanity has a harder time of it and i don't know people talk about i think there's a certain extent where people go too far when talking about say something like global warming Mm -hmm. where they like prophesy like literally like the world is dying and like humanity will go extinct Mm -hmm. i don't think those are very likely i think the world will be just fine and there there will certainly be a certain amount of species that will continue to live a much like diminished amount of species right and i think humanity as a whole will probably still survive it but not in our numbers you know not billions of humans yeah i have a feeling humanity will survive because we're just it'll just be a much worse world to live in yeah I think eventually maybe it could be good again after that. Well, sure, down yeah, the road, yeah. but yeah, regeneration, right. and then you know you can get that biodiversity back if you wait, uh, you know, fifteen million years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or one thing that I I hope we're doing because we're doing it with seeds. Yeah. Um, like in Svalbard, Norway, yeah. uh-huh. they've got the giant seed warehouse basically yeah. that's in a mountain. Right. And they, I think, have like every single type of plant known to man. Right. At least as much as they could feasibly collect there so they can replant stuff yeah when you know the world goes to shit yeah um i hope that they're doing the same thing with animal dna yeah like just going through the rainforest and swabbing bird cheeks oh yeah so you can collect (laughs) some dna put it in a petri dish and then you know it's like yeah when humans cause the extinction of this species of bird we can bring them back to life at some point through you know the miracles of science oh yeah never thought about with animals that'd be that'd be really interesting because i mean if we destroy the vast amount of biodiversity on earth yeah it's not going to come back for a really long time evolution is slow yeah so you could kind of jumpstart the process by saving the dna yeah right like we have dna of ancient creatures like Mm -hmm. we have mammoth dna dna okay and there's a hypothetical possibility that we could bring mammoths back into existence wow (laughs) it's like a it's like apple grafting oh like you take the the tree and you graft on apple to it and now like that branch grows this type of apple you do the same thing with elephant fetuses okay and you like graft on mammoth dna yeah and then in utero that elephant turns into a mammoth yeah and i think you have to start off with mammoth elephant hybrids and then you keep doing it over a few generations and you make them actually mammoths yeah wow so it's a thing that is hypothetically doable yeah probably will continue to be more doable in the future Mm -hmm. maybe in another couple hundred years we can actually bring back species fully yeah wow so yeah it's not all doom and gloom but it's certainly mm-hmm. not something we should be yeah being fine with the declining state of the environment yeah well i was just listening to a podcast yesterday and i suppose i could go look at the name of the person who was saying this but she came up with a new word instead of well she was just like saying how because you've probably heard the word anthropocene yeah um yeah she came up with the word planthropocene. Planthropocene. Meaning yeah. like the Anthropocene is, is talked about in like ecology circles as like the age of humanity. Age of humanity. And this is it's the age of all these problems that humanities cause. Yeah. But she thinks that while that's good to bring awareness of that stuff, it's still so human centered. Yes. So it's like if you her idea of the planthropocene was just like giving plants the the space to flourish and help ecosystems yeah also like us ourselves trying to improve or like reconnect to the plant world like human beings have almost always been so connected to the plants in their in their area but we've lost that connection to the plant kingdom and like 
she was saying like that's like our ticket back to sustainability is like yeah. reconnect with the plants around us and let them flourish and and learn about them and what they do and and even try to like she was getting really like philosophical with it too yeah. about like try to be more plant like as your animal self try to make your animal self more plant-like and what does that mean i don't know but she, <laughs> she was saying things like oh when you look at a tree and it looks kind of like a person with their arms out or something that's not like the tree looking like a person that's the tree telling us we can look like plants like we can look <laughs> so it's like <laughs> okay we can mold ourselves to look i don't know but i think maybe she just meant like um adaptability and like how plants share resources more yeah. under the soil and all kinds of stuff like that. I don't know. And how they're like rooted and they like stay in their communities kind of thing. Yeah, maybe. That could be part of it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I obviously didn't listen to this girl, but yeah. that's something that comes to mind. But yeah, I think like if there's anything we can do, it's like we have to do the big things along with the small things. You know, yes. like there's the seed vaults and stuff like that. We can start with just like learning the names of some plants in our some native plants and then like learning how to identify them or maybe planting some and volunteering with a, a group that like manages a prairie and just like little things like that obviously yeah. starting gardens and stuff too yeah. but even that is like a little harder than you'd think for a lot of people i think to in start terms of like that they don't have the time or the money or the actual like physical location or all of those things? Yeah, I think all of those things. Like, I think... I personally can't start a garden. I live in an apartment. Right, yeah. I, I, I Well, actually, I, I used to work for, like, the Waukesha County Parks Department. Mm. And there's this little area that's, like, county-owned, except it's open for people, just citizens to use. Mm -hmm. And it was this communal garden, and then people would, like, fence off their own little plot that they would garden on. Yeah. So they would, like, drive down to this garden and work on it. Yeah. So it's not even like it was on their property. Yeah. So I guess that's always an option. Yeah, those are really cool. Yeah, I've done a couple of those actually. My issue with those is that I I was feeling like sometimes I just wasn't maintaining the garden plot as well as I would have if it was in my backyard because yeah. it was like, oh, I, I'm tired from work. I I'm gonna don't drive feel twenty like, minutes to the garden. Yeah, I don't feel like going to the garden. Even if it was, it was closer for me, but like, still, it's a separate area. Yeah, yeah. it was dark. Uh, you know, but. Those things are wonderful. I definitely support community gardens for sure. Yeah. And a lot of times that does bring community together, like people together really well too. I, I went to a thing last fall at the uh, Victory Garden uh, Farm here in Milwaukee. It's just like like a mile northwest of here. And they had like a harvest party in like October or something right around the now september i think actually it was honestly like <laughs> such a it was just a really like refreshing experience because it was just like the most diverse group i had been in <laughs> in a long time i don't know it's just like and of course that would that would happen over food <laughs> so, yeah. you know of course so i feel like the more we focus on building community around sustainability efforts feel like that will also help us with like bridging social divides you know yeah obviously too like there it's crucial to have also the direct social justice work but like environmentalism yeah i'm just into the idea of intersectionality you know and 
And what do you mean by that? Just how we can address multiple problems, societal problems at, at once, once yeah. like by acknowledging that, every, you know, like problems overlap and yeah. Okay. Right. And like different groups of people are affected by the same problems often. Yeah. But then also sometimes they have groups of people have their own problems specific to them. There's an issue with like sometimes with like people who are viewing something, viewing societal issues th very strongly through like one lens, lens yeah. where it's like maybe they're like, uh, I'm just thinking of this because I'm, I'm in a history class right now. It's called the at UWM and it's called History of Democratic Socialism. So it's really interesting. But I've been learning about like the socialist movement in the U.S., and how a lot of the um, people in Milwaukee in particular, there was kind of like like a divide between some socialists saying like, well, basically it was like talking about like racial injustices. Some socialists took like just a very hard line, like Marxist view, which was like class struggle is the root of everything. And yeah. if we address economic injustice, then racial justice will follow. But then there was like this, there was a black socialist living in Milwaukee at the time. I can't remember his name, but um, he kind of like at a certain point turned his back on a lot of the social, the white socialists he was working with. And he said, no, race first for me. Like, so I think like the value of intersectionality today is like acknowledging that for like, for a person of color, maybe that <laughs> is like totally makes sense to like for them to focus on that social justice issues um instead of trying to and then for us to acknowledge that like just fixing the environment or just fixing the economy is not gonna necessarily lead to yeah racial justice or any kind of other social justice so just kind of like i feel like it's largely just about communicating like with people fighting for all kinds of justice and like asking them like hey what can we do to help and then like here's what we're doing what do you think of it and stuff like that yeah i definitely think there are lots of societal issues mm -hmm. and they all need to be worked on and it's probably not the case that solving one of them leads to solving all of them right however i do see maybe like a distinction of importance to be made mm -hmm. and I don't know. I'm sure someone could vilify me for saying this, but I feel like of all the problems in the world, I think the environmental ones are probably the most important because I do feel if you that. don't fix those problems, you, right. the other ones, you know, everybody dies or like lots of people die. Yeah. You have even worse problems that like yeah. will come up right. because of them. Yeah. I, um, I think that's been, so I just followed this like page online, this group called like intersectional environmentalism or something like that. So they're kind of addressing the fact that like, yes, the earth is our common home. So like, yeah. it does make sense that environmentalists have historically not really focused on other social issues because they're like, well, it's not like they're in denial of those, but they just really feel like they need to focus on yeah. it. So they're, they were kind of saying like, that is understandable that that's been the trend, but that there's ways to, have more crossover and yeah. like make social justice advocacy a part of yeah, your environmental with that. 
advocacy being like, yeah. hey, this is all actually connected because, you know, like yeah. it's people... all about caring about people and caring about right. where you live. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you get down to like how like people, a lot of people of color live in neighborhoods with more air pollution and yeah. water pollution. That's obviously I stuff could, like that. I could see it in like two ways at the same time where like focusing on multiple issues at once could be a strength because then you can draw in more people to your mm-hmm. movement that might not otherwise be part of it. Yeah. Because if you're saying like we're focused on environmentalism and like social justice, mm-hmm. then maybe you incorporate the people who aren't so much into environmentalism but are into social justice. So you get extra people in. Yeah. But then I feel like in a one in another way it could also be a weakness mm-hmm. in the sense that the more the less you're focused on one thing, the I would imagine like slower it would be to fix the problem. So Mm -hmm. like if you spread out your area of interest, like Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not going to be, you're going to be less effective overall. on Each of them. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you're trying to learn how to be a baker Mm -hmm. and a singer at the same time, you're going to be worse at both things than if you only just picked one. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. So it's still really important to have like, people who are specialists yeah i think a lot of the the place for intersectionality is is largely in like how a organization or whatever presents their work to the public and just like how they talk about it to the public and so like let's just like say like urban ecology center you know there's they still need to do like their like field study work where they monitor the streams and like plant native species and they need to have people very focused on that but like there's room for them on their public relations side still though to be like advocating for social justice i think and it's more like i feel like the specialism will still always need to be there behind the curtains like or behind the scenes just like always have people who are just like hyper focused on yeah on one thing or yeah i think more and like just communication it's about communication with groups who are specializing in different things and just asking if there's any way to mutually support each other stuff like that that's kind of what it's my idea of intersectionality yeah yeah i just had to ask what it was or what you yeah. meant by it because i that's a term i hear a lot and i feel like there are certain terms that you really got to ask somebody to define it because they might mean something different yeah. by it than right. what a lot of people mean. Yeah. Like it, uh, it does get thrown around a lot yeah. these days. So yeah. yeah. Like basically anytime somebody says socialism, I have to ask them what they mean by it. Right. Especially yeah. if they're arguing against it because yeah. then it's like, what what's the version of it you're arguing against yeah. in your mind? Yeah. Speaking of, of this, I've been learning. I just learned this uh, the other day from that class. I'm taking uh, history of democratic socialism. It might also, it might be in the U.S. I can't even remember what the title of the course is called, but I think it's because I think we're mostly focusing on the U.S., but not totally sure. But I just think it's really interesting that Milwaukee, we've had three socialist mayors in our our history. Um, The first one was elected in 1910. The next one was like 1918, and that one served for 24 years. And then there was a third one. So, yeah, Emil Seidel was the first one. Daniel Hone, who they named the Hone Bridge after, was the second one. And then Frank Zeidler was the third one. But I just thought, I think it's really, 
a crazy story, the story of the first socialist mayor. So he only served for two years from 1910 to 12, but he served while he was serving, there was a major, there was a socialist majority in the Milwaukee city council, which is pretty wild. And they also like, they sometimes called themselves socialists. Sometimes they call themselves social Democrats because um, their brand of socialism was like more pragmatic and like, they're like, yes, the goal is the end goal is abolition, abolition of like these unjust systems that are, you know, hurting the working class, but we still have to just like try to, you know, play the game that is being played and get elected to government positions. And so they were like really pragmatic and sometimes criticized by socialists elsewhere in the world for it. They got the name sewer socialists for that reason, because it was like, oh, all they're doing is just getting new sewers and municipal improvements. And they're not actually really socialists because they're not interested in revolution. And But they did a lot of amazing things for the city. And some of them, would they didn't really appreciate that kind of remark because they, they claimed they were still like tr true socialists. Yeah. They were just being realistic about things. But anyway, this first one, he... Uh, some of the things he did in his two years with the majority socialist common council was like establish an eight hour workday for city employees after there had been decades of like struggle for that. There was apparently even like some horrible event in like Bayview in like the 1880s where like a bunch of people were killed. I don't know if it was by police or whatever, but. Anyway, the eight-hour workday was finally established by this guy for city employees. And anyway, he also raised minimum wage for city employees by like 12%. He uh, established a vocation, vo the vocational school that is now known as MATC. I think he might have established the park system or it was either him or the next socialist mayor that did that, count the city park system. He also like advocated for unions and like, offered to serve as like what were called arbitrators in in a union strike where basically it's just like the legal proceedings they would like the city would help the unions out which i think is pretty cool but anyway the funny part about it is after two years of this the republican and democratic parties in milwaukee joined forces and like christened one candidate that they both agreed on just to defeat the socialist guy because <laughs> they hated, they just didn't. Yeah. I just thought that was wild. Like, I think that's kind of like funny how that still sort of seems like it's going on today where like Republicans and Democrats both reject anything resembling like socialism. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, they, can't have Bernie Sanders. Right. Let's yeah. have Joe Biden. Instead. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I just thought that was really funny and like that they had to, create another candidate although we did have basically a socialist president for like 16 years fdr was yeah. so socialist yeah like he instituted all these things like um social security mm -hmm. um and like the new deal yeah and he was basically spending a bunch of government money to get us out of the great depression yeah and everybody loved him also. yeah he was yeah because it's like i don't i don't understand why i mean this this, this could be a whole two-hour conversation in itself but just the fear of anything that smells like socialism yeah. like you said like it's 
I think at least part of it is like the lingering ghost of McCarthyism. It's like yeah. the red oh, scare. Right. Anything that's, you know, socialism is closer to communism than Which just capitalism is. Yeah. And people are so afraid of communism in because, all its forms. Yeah. Because of the certain dictatorships that have yeah. happened. Yeah. It's still silly to me that people can't think critically enough to recognize that, like, just a few socialist implementations within a democratic system is Would a far cry from you like, <laughs> individually. Yeah. As well as everyone you know. For instance, if we had universal basic income. Right. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> so this podcast might actually come out after the election, so I don't know what the turnout will be, obviously, but right now there's like ads and during the presidential debates, mm-hmm. you've got Trump or um, Mike Pence who are trying to put Biden's proposed tax cuts mm-hmm. to seem like some sort of like attack on the American people. Like he's going to, he's going to. In, like raise taxes for anybody who makes over four hundred thousand dollars a year. It's like that's not most people. Like yeah. yeah, odds are if you just heard that sentence, it doesn't affect you, and it actually probably should be a good thing for you. Yeah, even the people who make four hundred thousand dollars a year, it's probably a good thing for. Yeah, the thing that just bothers me is that that the Republican Party has convinced so many working class people that. Billionaires earn their wealth, and, yes, or yeah. even millionaires. You know, it's like that. Oh, they're just living the American dream. That's yeah. That there's nothing wrong with that. And we shouldn't penalize to, them yeah. for that. <laughs> it's convinced they stand people up to go them. against their own interests. Yeah, like it, you don't want unions. Like no, yeah. that's bad for you. It's like right. we're just gonna pay you as little as possible, and you know, yeah. you still have the ability to make a billion dollars, and mm-hmm. just it only depends on your own genius yeah right you can do it you can become the next jeff bezos no problem it's like nope you either have to uh inherit or exploit yeah or or just get extremely lucky yeah right yeah (laughs) your effort is not a large ingredient in the recipe agreed it's 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 still a necessary ingredient you do need effort this springs back once again to the the book outliers you need effort but your circumstances are actually what opens the door Mm-hmm. You could be the most proficient at something in the world yeah. and never get an opportunity to actually benefit from it. Right. Yeah. People always say, like, talk about how rich people worked hard. I'm like, I'm sure they did, but like, everybody's yeah. working hard. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there well, are stats that show that, um, like, millionaires are, like, they work the most hours out of any other group of people. Okay. But then it's like, is that proportional to the amount of money they make? Right. Are they working millions of times harder than I am? They obviously cannot be, like right. physically. Yeah, just hours is like... So yes, they might be working more because, you know, they're a CEO, <laughs> so a lot, of, a lot of things demand their attention. Yeah. But do millions more things demand their attention? Yeah, right. I mean, it doesn't scale well. Yeah. That yeah. argument anyway doesn't scale well. And what I meant before by saying the tax is good for you if you make $400,000 a year, mm-hmm. is there's a certain amount of wealth inequality that actually becomes bad for the, for the richest people. Oh, yeah. The economy does worse with higher levels of wealth inequality. Okay. Like if yeah. you've got super right. big stratification and lots of poor people, they're going to be spending less money. Mm-hmm. They're going to be stimulating the economy less. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, you know, there's less innovation and there's less opportunities mm-hmm. for money to be made yeah. in that circumstance. Right. So if you're an uber rich person, you get taxed and that tax money goes into stimulating the economy. Yeah. I mean, you get a couple more percentage of your money taken off that what was going into 
like something so important for you. Yeah. It was, no, it was you already had so much excess money that you probably don't notice the few extra percentage of your income getting removed. Yeah. But it's going to helping so many more people who, yeah. you know, I would hope you give a shit about. Right. <laughs> yeah. I would hope. <laughs> Somehow you can get, convince working class people who are literally in poverty to vote against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. And also, I think part of that, too, is, like, there's certain issues, like abortion. Yeah, that people like, they're single voter, voters. Yes. Yeah. And it's, like, that's religion interfering with politics, where it's, like, people have, there's been so much, like, fear-mongering going on within, like, uh, religious, institutional religious communities yeah. that, like, they've been convinced to ignore all other just sweep aside all other justices or yeah. sweep it under the rug in favor of one or two issues yeah. that actually um, comes back to what i was saying how yeah. it could actually be a weakness or a, a strength to um, focus on multiple things multiple problems because yeah if you so exclusively focus on one thing uh-huh. it actually might be detrimental in the wrong long run that you're excluding yeah. your attention from all these other issues yeah if you're a single issue voter and all you care about is abortion mm. Everything else that you are putting into action through your vote could come back to bite you. Right. I'm sure you got one thing you wanted, but did you get the other 99 things? Right. <laughs> yeah. And one thing that should be mentioned, and of course, don't exactly take my word for it. I could be wrong or whatever. Mm-hmm. So look into it if it piques your interest. Mm-hmm. But number of abortions goes down the more you give access to abortions and birth control. Yeah. So the pro-choice crowd is decreasing the total amount of abortions. And you can see that if you look at like democratic presidents, the amount wow. of abortions that happen within their term yeah. versus presidents who try to restrict birth control. Wow. So like it's a weird way of people who don't want abortions cause more abortions. <laughs> wow. That's wild. And it's, I mean, it's not like pro-choice people want abortions. Right. It's not the right way to put it, but still by trying to, Take away something from people, mm-hmm. you make it happen more, mm-hmm. generally. That makes sense. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's similar in my mind to like drugs and drug restriction and um, mm-hmm. criminalization. The fact that it is criminalized is making it happen more and more dangerously. Uh-huh. In countries that have done, probably talked about this before, but in countries that have decriminalized drugs, such as Portugal, mm-hmm. you find that less people do drugs. Yeah same type of type of uh right. thing going on there yeah you increase education you increase access mm-hmm. and i mean not like just access to drugs but access to like safe drugs and you make it you, you set up institutions where if you have an addiction you can go safely do your heroin mm-hmm. it is not like heroin cut with rat poison it's just yeah heroin that these nurses are providing to you mm-hmm. to help you get over your addiction and slowly go through your you know right. getting better wean you off slowly yeah kind of thing yeah and then overall obviously you have drug related crime happen less because now drugs are not Mm. so it's not like everybody who is caught with possession of drugs is going to jail so yeah you don't need to react violently right yeah okay basically what what i see as one of not the the root problem but um, one problem that causes both of these things Mm. is the overemphasis on crime and law that yeah. you see in the Republican side of things. Mm-hmm. Obviously, laws are important. I don't think there's many anarchists out there. Mm-hmm. But it's such it's like this idea that crime and law is the answer to all these problems by just yeah. making things 
more illegal, making things mm-hmm. more punishable, making things more strict and more severe, yeah. that's the answer. Right. It's like, no, that's hardly ever the answer. Yeah. Especially with things like abortions and drugs, which are going to occur regardless of their legal status. Yeah. Like, they're just going to be more deaths and injuries and harm done if they are legal, illegal. Yeah. Than if they're legal. <laughs> And I guess the big difference is that a certain side cares more about the principles of people doing things that they perceive as immoral, whether they're actually immoral or not. Mm-hmm. And then the other a different side cares more about the harm done, like that the people that are hurt by this. Yeah. So like, you know, Republicans are thinking like, well, if we make these things legal, legal that's like societal decay. That's people you know, losing their morality. We can't like just allow sexual deviance mm-hmm. for, you know, you can just get an abortion anytime. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're more caring about, you know, the personal responsibility yeah, and like following the principles, the rules yeah, rather than the harm done by these things. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And that what you said too made me think of a, a point, which is just like, it's really silly that people think that there are, <laughs> Like, it seems like some Republicans have this idea that there's all these women out there who are just having unprotected sex willy-nilly and getting an abortion every time they get pregnant and they get a bunch of abortions and they don't even care. It's like, I I don't know anybody who's like that. I'm sure there's at least one person like (laughs) that, but it's definitely not the rule. It's 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 the exception. Yeah. And I I think nobody wants to get pregnant, like people who don't want to get pregnant don't want to get pregnant yeah and they avoid getting pregnant at all they don't just like rely on the abortion as yeah. a, it's like that's it's not like an abortion is a fun thing to no. do yeah it's like i'm gonna spend my saturday like you know i'm gonna go to the mall get my nails done get an abortion yeah you know it's not like an activity yeah. right yeah it's something you would like to avoid if possible it's right an unpleasant procedure that happens to your body right and then if it, if you do need one I feel like yeah, it's, it's you like, should be able to get one a safe one. Yeah, um, it's your yeah. last line of defense, right? <laughs> against it's not like your go-to, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the thing is with like people who are really just fundamentalist about all that is they'll just keep bringing it back. It's just like a cyclical thing where they're yeah. like five fifty million babies, fifty million. <laughs> they're they're dying. It's a holocaust. You're a terrible person. It's a holocaust. They'll just say shit like that, or like it's like how people just keep bringing things back. Not that abortions mentioned in the Bible, but with other issues, yeah. they'll be like, "Nope, Bible says this. Doesn't yeah. matter. Bible says this." It's yeah. pretty frustrating. I don't know, especially because it's like I know that like seventy. There's a stat that seventy-seven percent of anti-abortion activists or pro-life activists are men, and it's just oh, like, yeah. it does just seem like a way to control women and. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, I mean it, that's definitely not um, like an idea that I think any pro-life people would accept. But right, it's, I it's just my uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> observation. I don't know. Oh, and the thing I mentioned about um like the liberal view of the importance of harm and not having harm happen versus the like conservative view of following principles and like aspects of you know, like purity like sexual purity and stuff yeah yeah you can find more of that if you want listener uh if you read the book the righteous mind by jonathan Haidt. 
That also makes me want to just say that, like, I think there are merits to, like, conservatism in general. Yeah. And there are merits to liberalism in general. And Yeah, it's not like one side is completely flawed. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, you know, yeah, I hope we can get to a point as our generation starts to, like, start to, you know, replace the older ones in, like, political offices and just in the professional world that there's more just like uh listening to each other with the intent to understand rather yeah. than just to attack or yeah. attack or pounce back and, or hold the line hold the party line you know it's like yeah because there's conversations there's, where you're open to having your mind changed on something yeah yeah there there's a lot everybody can learn from each other and yeah yeah i don't know i do wonder if that is going to get better or worse because we're definitely living in a period of misinformation and intense mm-hmm. political polarization, largely yeah. thanks to social media and the internet. Yeah. And I wonder if the younger generations, people younger than us, like teenagers and stuff, are wise enough to the ways of the internet to realize that it's not actually representative of the real world and it's a distorting effect on the real world. Mm-hmm. Where a lot of people older than us, and even people our age, but especially people older than us, like mm-hmm. our parents' age, for instance, yeah. 40 and 50-year-olds who are on the internet now are definitely falling into the trap of believing in misinformation yeah. on the internet. Right. And and thus they are thinking that the other side is like evil and demonic. And yeah. Like they're getting this unrealistic view of what other people believe. Yeah. So I hope, I wonder if people younger than us see through that or at least are have are more like... Since they grew up with it, they're mm-hmm. more capable of distinguishing what's actually true from what's internet yeah. true, or if it's just going to continue to get worse. Yeah, I don't know. I do think there's a chance of the former. I hope so. I mean, case. I would think that, like, basically, you throw a stone at a group of teenagers, and the one you hit is going to tell you that. As a weird analogy, or a weird way to put it, but anyway, the random teenager sample you choose, they're mm-hmm. gonna know that Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and whatnot are bad sources of information. Right. Yeah, untrustworthy places yeah. to find yeah. your news, and your whereas you know the average forty year old is like, oh, I get all my news from Twitter. Yeah, you know? yeah. I I talked to a lady the other day. Um, on my job right now is just I'm walking around. Ask, well, I was registering people to vote. Yeah. Now I'm just asking, offering them information about election day and stuff. And we're supposed to be nonpartisan, but sometimes people tell you their their the views, blues, yeah. even when you don't ask. And <laughs> there's this lady who she must have been in her like 60s. She just like leads with, "I get all my news from YouTube." And I was like, "Oh God!" <laughs> like that's how you get flat earthers. Yeah. And I was like, she was like, "You can't watch the news networks, any of them." they're all in on it i'm like oh man and then she she got into some ridiculous like conspiracy theories that like china is like starting wildfires in on the west coast and uh that's where they're coming from and i was like okay uh i tried to just politely remove myself at first and then she kind of didn't stop talking and then i had to be like ma'am i have a job to do i'm sorry i can't engage with you like about this yeah. stuff and she got she seemed quite uh i could tell she was just like off the deep end though yeah. with Out her like thinking with reality yeah kind of she was just yeah. like because yeah i think I see that a lot i think it's like people who dive into the 
intense conspiracy stuff like QAnon and whatnot. Yes. They're looking for like a fundamentalist view of the world where there's there's good and evil and yeah. there's a there's a demonic cult and they're running society. It's just like a simple answer rather yes. than like yeah. this complex world where a broken economy and broken society that is polluting the earth is creating deranged people that do bad things instead of like viewing it all complex like that yeah they're just like yeah there's this there's a cult i mean some of them do just straight up say it's like demonic and they get into like religious terms but even the ones who don't use religious terms i think are kind of still approaching it with like a fundamentalism yes point of view and it's yeah yeah Interesting. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. Yeah, <laughs> I just looked it up because I encountered this word earlier today, but it's uh, a Manichaean or Manichaean worldview, oh, okay. separating things into good and evil or black and white. Oh yeah, um, which is definitely what's going on. Mm-hmm. Another aspect of it that I find in conspiracy theory thinking, yeah, that's similar to what you're saying, mm-hmm. is there's like this need for people often, like a religious thinking fits in, fits into this too, mm-hmm. and conspiracy thinking. It's this need to see the world in a fundamentally ordered way mm. as opposed to a fundamentally chaotic way Got it. or a random way. Like if you are a person who is not drawn into conspiracy theories, you're mm. more likely, I think, I mean, I should, I don't know if I have any surveys on this, but it seems to me you're more likely to accept the fact that the universe is kind of just inherently chaotic or yeah. that there's, there's randomness involved mm-hmm. rather than needing to find some like order that has established everything to be Mm -hmm. it's like yeah but you're saying yeah it's like looking for an easy answer or just an answer at all Mm -hmm. really yeah some questions don't have answers right at least it seems to be so yeah and i think also maybe just to tie this back to like the ecology stuff like a lot of i think there's an issue of people being afraid of like thinking of the universe and the world as chaotic because our society is like making us believe that like the wild which is like what was here before we got here yeah is ruthless and chaotic and that we're bringing order to it with our society whereas like the truth of the situation is more like there's a loose it's like a controlled chaos more so yeah. like in ecosystems and stuff where it, it's, it's almost it's, very ordered in a way. Yeah. It's actually not that scary. So like it's no, nothing to fear really yeah. to look at the gray area, to look at like just the reality of things. The complex reality is not something to fear, but I think some people have been trained to believe that it is and that, yeah, it's like, it's just black and white and we need yeah total order. Does that make sense? No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. Although, yeah, I mean, it, really, if you look at it in a way like ecosystems, mm-hmm. if you just have one that is, you know, take humans out of the picture and you just have an ecosystem that has been growing for millions of years and you look at it, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it, there's like a harmony there. There's a mm-hmm. interdependence on all the species and they're working with each other or yeah. against each other, but in ways that keep the thing stable. Mm-hmm. There's like an inherent stability in, I guess, really life in general. Yeah like you know plant life animal life life that develops it yeah it's stable which i feel like is like a main factor in what order is yeah i think maybe if you look at the universe as a whole it's not not so stable it's mm. gonna explain you know 
things get sucked into black holes and yeah the universe seem there's there's genuine randomness that comes about yeah and even on earth there's like mutations yeah, yeah. there's there's still random events but yeah. yeah if you look at like an ecosystem without human intervention it seems already pretty ordered mm-hmm. and not through intelligent design by the way yeah ordered out of you know years and years of evolution and things working with each other yeah exactly and that too is another reason i feel along the same lines i think like we can probably make our society less like especially in this country like it's probably possible to make it less vile and like part hyper partisan because like because of the fact that like human beings have the innate capacity to connect with each other and to like organize and like to better communities so i think a big thing with like sustainability is like going to be more localization of sustainability efforts and like just more yeah more community gardens stuff like that but i hope that people just start talking to their neighbors no matter how different the neighbors are because it's like if we're living in the same place like we do have we're we're living in the same ecosystem so it's like we should be able to communicate yeah as residents of the same like city because there's like just a i don't know we should be able to understand each other a little better after yeah. a conversation like but, you, yeah like you do share a community so you should act like it right exactly that's that's great <laughs> <laughs> so before we end the podcast yeah i've been asking people what your favorite book is or what a book you would recommend to the listener is. It okay. doesn't necessarily have to pertain to this conversation. Yeah. Just maybe a recent one you read or one of your favorites. Yeah. Um, if you have one. Yeah, I have some. I think I'll, I'll say, maybe say a few to recommend. One that is definitely relevant to some of the stuff we talked about. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass. It's by a, an indigenous author. Her name is uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. K-I-M-M. E-R-E-R. She writes uh, the subtitle of the book. So it's Braiding Sweetgrass. The subtitle is um, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. Hmm. So she is not yeah, only... I saw you reading that book yeah, in the past. Yeah, she's not only an indigenous woman, but she is also a trained botanist. She has like a PhD or something in botany. So she's bringing together kind of the scientific approach to plants with like the uh indigenous approach where where it's kind of more like almost animistic yeah asking the plants things and asking permission to use to harvest them and off giving the earth offerings and and knowing that each plant has a lesson for humans like we can we can like apply it to human communities and Things like that. It's just a really beautiful, beautifully written book too. And yeah, it helps that she has like the, the training in botany. So she kind of appeals to a, a non-indigenous, mindset. yeah, or non-indigenous or more scientific person. So I recommend that. Nice. I'd also recommend just not that it's like an easy read because it's pretty dense, but uh, a people's history of the United States. It's by a, historian howard zinn and he just kind of tells u.s history through the lens of the people who have been oppressed and 
didn't get their version of the history written in our textbooks. So that's like a really, and actually (laughs) his work, he's dead now, but like he has a whole foundation in his name. And like, I believe that his foundation is connected to the, the 1619 project, which is the thing that is educating people about slavery Hmm. in the U S in schools now, but it's, being actively suppressed well want or in danger of being suppressed by trump because he and he's like acknowledged it as being an unpatriotic education and he wants to give (laughs) he wants to return the you know a patriotic education (laughs) to the u.s yeah which is basically i think turn a blind eye to all the terrible things like history from the victor's perspective yeah so i guess those two books i'll i'll recommend (laughs) cool Oh, yeah, I've, I've mentioned two books in, throughout this podcast, I think, already, but I'll mention one more that you should read. It's yeah. interesting. It has to do with sustainability and stuff. Um, Silent Spring. Mm-hmm. It's like the book that launched or largely responsible for launching like the new like environmentalism movement in the 60s and onward, and largely mostly about pesticides and how they've ruined the world. It's mm-hmm. very depressing, but very important. Rachel Carson, right? Rachel Carson, yeah. yeah. I've not read it, but I want to. Yeah, yeah. it's very good. Very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Wade. Any parting words? Have fun. Stay safe. <laughs> Have fun. Stay safe. Stay together. I like it. Uh, go for a walk. Yeah. Go outside. Go outside. <laughs> Bye, everybody.